Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins, and thanks for your company for yet another week. A special thank you to my Patreon sponsors. We met up a couple of weeks ago for an online concert, and it was lovely to hear everyone chatting in the waiting room, sharing stories, and realizing many had met before. So it was just so wonderful. I'll put a link in the show notes if you're interested in sponsoring me. And a a big shout out this week to Bill and Martha, Laura and Patty, who joined me as patrons this month. I really appreciate it. Patreon.com forward slash Dan Mullins. I'm a big fan of the Australian artist and poet Michael Lunig. Google his work. You'll love it. L-E-U-N-I-G, Michael Lunig. One of my favourite quotes of his is, Each day is a lifetime. In the morning we are born. The day lies before us, vast and bright and new. Well, my Camino friend Shane Oldfield, who I interviewed just a few weeks ago, sent me another Lunig poem this week. It's a prayer. Dear God, we pray for another way of being, another way of knowing. Across the difficult terrain of our existence, we have attempted to build a highway and in doing so have lost our footpath. God, lead us to our footpath. Lead us there where, in simplicity, we may move at the speed of natural creatures and feel the earth's love beneath our feet. Lead us there where, step by step, we may feel the movement of creation in our hearts. And lead us there where, side by side, we may feel the embrace of the common soul. Nothing can be loved at speed. God, lead us to the slow path, to the joyous insights of the pilgrim, another way of knowing, another way of being. Amen. On the Camino, you'll become a friend to strangers, a carer, a listener, perhaps even a shoulder to cry on. I really appreciate your kindness. Ah, kindness. It's often said that in giving a gift or providing assistance, you actually are the beneficiary. You feel better about the act of giving than the person receiving the gift or help. And I think that's very true. And I think it's particularly true on the Camino. Reaching out to help others becomes second nature. You are, after all, the best version of you. You are taking the time out from the daily grind to find a better you. Or perhaps you're just simply enjoying the slow tourism of another country. Well, that too lends itself to deeper thought, to a softer side of you. I know in my case, I've told this story before, I met a man in St. Michael del Camino at Albergue Vieira. He was tending to everyone's feet, fixing their blisters and bandaging their toes. I was only three days into the Camino when I met him, And I was genuinely surprised at this generous gesture. I couldn't help but think of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, one of whom we walk to honour on the Camino, a journey in the name of St. James. So this kindness finds itself within us on the Camino, and we all like to think we can take it back, or at least part of it, back to our lives, our homes, our communities. It's really not a stretch to suggest we all ought to be more kind, more giving, and more generous. The American rabbi Harold S. Kucher once said, Do things for people not because of who they are or what they do in return, but because of who you are. We often reflect on our families, in particular those who raised us, and we can imagine a time when they did something for us, something kind, 
and it lights a candle inside us. Mark Peterson is CEO of what's called Stronger Philanthropy, an organisation based in Toronto, Canada, and it was created to serve major donors as a granting hub, providing funds from donors to high-impact charitable projects. He knows all about giving. Mark's new book is called Love Giving Well, The Pilgrimage of Philanthropy. It's a book about the similarities between pilgrimage and philanthropy. You see, Mark walked the Camino Norte and the Camino Porto and came home with a full heart and a plan to write a book about it. Mark Peterson is on the line. Welcome, Pilgrim. Hello there, Dan. Good to be here. You wrote to me to say the book is basically in two parts, and I might be interested in your writings on the Camino and perhaps not as interested in the other part of the book about a life of giving. (laughs) Well, as it turns out, I was much more enamored with the giving part. It's been your life. And Lorna Dueck writes in the introduction to the book, when Jesus commissioned his followers, he told them to look for people like my friend Mark. Jesus said these charitable workers were not sent with a bag of money for their tasks. Rather, they were told to look for welcome. Jesus said, whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. Tell us about what Lorna writes about there, Mark, looking for welcome. Yes, I, I really do believe that we look for welcome as, as pilgrims, as peregrinos, and as philanthropists as well. I, I write later in the book about how many, many times uh, when you do have wealth to give away and it becomes known in the community, you become a target and it becomes, you become commodified in a sense where, where people approach you and become your friend just because of the money. Uh, they're trying to raise money for their their own projects, and that's a worthy goal. But somehow, for the philanthropist, it it can become pretty mechanical, and you feel can feel a little bit used in the process. And so, I look for welcome where where I am welcome into a relationship together with the charities that we support, as being a, a walker together with them in in their mission. Mm. And, and not just as a means to an end, but rather participating together with them in, in the mission of the organization, wow. the good goals. That yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. You compare a life of philanthropy to a pilgrimage. The work is slow, incremental, and at times mm-hmm. painfully complicated. And I was fascinated to read in the book that we're living in times of the largest wealth transfer ever and astonishing, $30 trillion dollars will move from the generous and hardworking baby boomers to millennials. And you write about, and and indeed Lorna writes in the introduction about how to handle that wealth and sharing it with those who truly need it is part of a collective pilgrimage for these times. And you write in the book, though you begin the Camino a loner, an incredibly diverse community begins to form as a group of completely unrelated people began walking over many weeks. And this solo walk evolved into a community walk. And that, in some ways, Mark, is a real reflection of your work as a philanthropist. What was your goal when you set off on your Camino? Well, I think I was looking, I was looking to walk the Camino in Spain um, just to detach myself from my busy life in Canada and uh, to gain perspective, um, to clear my head. You know, I think a lot of us do tend to walk the Camino for those reasons Um, as well. I had spiritual reasons for it. And, um, 
you know, I, I use it as a time of prayer and a time of contemplation. Um, and so for me, walking the, the Camino was, was that, you know, it was a very helpful way to, to disengage from a busy life. I think my motivation when I first started, this is in 2014, um, I had heard about the Camino around 2008, I think, from a friend of mine, uh, someone who I met through my work uh, and who was the recipient of some of the funds that we we provided. And uh, and he told me about the Camino and how useful it was, how amazing it was for him to to get out of his his rut and clear his head and find find himself again um you know i think in in all of our lives we're really busy and we fill our lives with so much activity uh business is demanding um even the business of philanthropy that i do is is demanding um it doesn't seem like there's ever an end to to the need mm. and walking on the Camino for me then just became a way to get away for a month and, and uh, find who I am again. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think yeah. it does that? Why do you think it enables us to kind of be transformed in a way? I, I think it's helpful because the act of walking each day, it's a step-by-step process that you have to really live in the moment, right in that moment, every single day. You have to look where your feet are going, you know, yeah. don't step on that rock. Don't step in the mud puddle, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's as, it's as basic and, and mundane as that, you know? And, and so because you have to be so, so attentive and present to your immediate surroundings uh, while walking the pilgrimage, you can then kind of let go of all those things that normally crowd our minds. Um, you know, I sit, my my daily work uh, involves sitting at a computer a lot of the day, and it's just a lot of thinking and a lot of you know interacting with people, emailing and and uh, reading applications and things like that. So your your mind is always busy. So getting out on the Camino is like such a wonderful escape to um, get out of that busy mind thing that we're all in. Yeah, yeah. You say in the book, like pilgrimage, philanthropy is also a slow journey. You don't see change overnight. You take step after step after step. Shortcuts can work, but often turn out badly. Patience is required. You must know the tilt of the land, the rocks along the way, and the weather patterns that affect your walking forward. And you detail in the book then what you've learned from leading a mid-sized family-based philanthropic organisation and the, the changes you've experienced on that journey and some of the best practices. I'm certain one question my listeners would expect me to ask is, how did you end up with the resources to dedicate your life to giving and philanthropy? Well, just like you uh, mentioned earlier with this wealth transfer that's happening from baby, baby boomers to millennials, I'm not a millennial, but uh, my parents uh, were the creators of the wealth in our family. And um, when they were uh, in 1980, they had a family business and they came to the point of realizing that they had enough money for themselves and for their family. My dad did a, a very kind of unconventional thing at the time. And it was against the advice of his accountants and lawyers. He said, I'm going to do an estate freeze and any growth in my business from now on 
is going to be allocated to a foundation. So he basically made a decision. He drew a line in the sand and said, this amount is enough for me and my family. We don't need any more. And interestingly, what happened after that point is his business grew quite significantly. And so when we came around to 1997, he sold his company at that point. And uh, the profit of the company, the entire 100% profit, uh, went into a foundation, wow. which I ended up running. So, I mean, I, I, I tell that story because I think it's such a wonderful story that for all of us today, we, we live in a time of such wealth today in our world. And, and it's actually egregious wealth if you look around and see the luxury that's out there and the way that some people are spending their money on trinkets that don't satisfy. You know, they're... People have yachts and, and jewelry and all kinds of things, but that that stuff doesn't really bring life or pleasure or happiness. I think the wealth is better used when it's contributed to the community, when, when you can actually contribute to change in our world through, through giving. Wow, what a great answer. And the clarity and the ability to write about giving you say in the book, has come from investing time and thoughtfulness into determining core strengths and opportunities. And I imagine it is very difficult to say no gracefully mm. and, and, and firmly. So one of the things, I suppose, in positive aspect of that would be partnering with non-profit people, leaders in the community. You must work with a lot of really inspiring people. I do. I'm surrounded by them and I'm so thankful and grateful to them um, for being in my life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, like I, my best friends are charity leaders and, um, you know, they're the ones I go to with my problems as well. <laughs> Lorna says in the intro, for a richer, more robust and joyful philanthropy, it's necessary to move beyond common pitfalls. We naively start off our journeys full of good intentions, but encounter thorny briars, such as the failure to communicate clearly and set thoughtful strategies. Large donations can often create unnecessary potholes for those behind us on the path. Giving with strings attached or to exert undue or unrecognised power generates thunderstorm clouds that darken the day when lightning mm -hmm. strikes. Someone can get burned. Hiding behind barriers and playing hard to get, not unlike the nasty blisters that form on a pilgrim's heel and toe. What does she mean that giving with strings attached or to exert undue or unrecognized power generates thunderstorms? What does Lorna mean? Yeah. Money, money can be used as, as a, a way to control and um, exert power over other people. And my, my thought on philanthropy is that it, it, it's better if the philanthropist lets go, you know, and it's a true gift where, you surrender the control over what the funds are used or how they're used um, when they're given. And so I think many people, when they do give money, they do tie strings to the use of the money. Right. And we, we, we do give, give grants uh, to charities for specific projects. There are kind of goals and outcomes that we're expecting from the, from the gift, but 
we also give it with an attitude of trust that the charity will will uh, utilize the funds the best way they know how for the purposes that they said that they're going to achieve. But we don't try to kind of meddle and and uh, control the money after it's given. Yet I'm I'm certain as part of your journey, though, you'd want to make sure that. I guess the, that it's being used for what it's supposed to be used for. Yes. Yeah. We, what we do is in, in our, in our application process, we invite the charity to articulate what their goals are. And if we agree with that, then we'll give them the funds and, and let them use them in a, in the way that will achieve those aims. Yeah. Um, so there is that aspect of, you know, purpose behind the money. Yeah. Yeah. You go through some of the motivations behind giving, and I was fascinated by them. The first is giving to get. It sounds simple, yet it's vastly complicated, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, discerning what your motivations are in giving uh, is is a complicated thing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure many of us, all of us probably give with many mixed motivations, um, there's, there's always a little bit of a selfish motivation, I think in there that, you know, we try to let go of, but, um, but that is, is probably going to always exist. You know, one of the other motivations is, that, well, there's, I want to give back. Um, number four is I want to help the poor. You write about the problems associated with that. And what struck me was that you say the problem with that approach is sometimes it's based on the assumption that the materially poor have nothing to offer. Mm, Talk us yeah. through that. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think um, there's, there's a wonderful theory that I've learned about over the years, uh, particularly used in international aid organizations uh, called Asset-Based Community Development, ABCD. And I really like that terminology and, and approach because what they do working in rural communities in sub-Saharan Africa, but you can apply this to wherever you're located. Um, you look around and you see mud huts and you see people that are hungry. Um, and it looks like a very impoverished, um, sad environment, but we fail to recognize that all of us, uh, no matter what strata of society we're in, we all have gifts, we all have abilities, we all have talents. We all have something to contribute to the greater good. And so when, when we try to give grants with uh, organizations that are working in impoverished areas, we encourage them to look at um, finding the assets that are already available and existing within the community and and letting those be uh, flourish and and be encouraged through um, the interaction with the charity, and the money comes along and is a helpful feature in empowering the community further. But even more important than the money, I think, are the uh, is the human capital behind it. Wow, that's really interesting. Wow, what a great concept. And number five of your motivations behind giving is I want to be known. Where do the complications lie in that strategy? Well, I think that um, we, we do see a pattern today where, where philanthropy can become much more of a marketing tool 
for corporations or for individuals. Uh, and I find that troubling. I don't find it helpful. I think there's a way to, to give, um, and I don't think all giving needs to be anonymous, but I don't think we should be doing it to kind of market ourselves, Yeah, you know, and, and uh, um, sometimes when you do give, uh, the charity will ask us, you know, well, can we put your name on the plaque, on a plaque on the wall, or can we do something like that to recognize you? And we allow them to do that, but we certainly don't want them to. Um, it wouldn't be something that we're asking for at the outset. The charity likes to do that sometimes because um, seeing the names of other donors encourages other donors in their in their networks to also then give. So I suppose there's a a motivation there that they use. Both your parents were raised in the 40s and 50s by fathers who were pastors in the same fundamentalist denomination that was characterised by a list of do's and don'ts attempting to legislate external behaviours. How has that shaped your future, your life? They they left that fundamentalist group uh, when they got married. They, they, they tell the story of getting into the car after the wedding and driving away from this church that they had been married in. And they, the, the thunderstorms just started breaking open, lightning struck, and it just started pouring cats and dogs. And they were driving away and they looked at each other and they just burst out laughing because <laughs> they, they knew that they were leaving all of that behind. <laughs> and and, and they, they started, you know, going to a much more um, progressive church environment that that shaped me in my in my uh career and my life so i didn't necessarily grow up in that but they they did right so let's talk about faith then um and and let's start i suppose with this aspect of it how do faith-based charities differ from a more general philanthropic determination as it were yeah i think um there's all kinds of different charities out there Um, secular ones that don't have a faith perspective are equally effective and productive in, in getting the job done. Um, The donors that I work for now, uh, many of them have selected faith-based charities as the ones that they want to partner with. And I think the distinction there is they want their funds to go to people that share their values, Mm -hmm. Um, not the beneficiary of the, of the work, but organizations that are um, doing the work, um, they, they want them to have a, a similar motivation to them in their giving. And uh, the, the grants are, are given to charities that are trying to make a difference in the world, benefiting all, all the community, regardless of uh, religion, regardless of their um uh, uh, faith perspective. Sure, sure. But they want they want to do it as a, as a way to express their faith. I think through yeah. the giving. Yeah, yeah. And how much do you consider the life and teachings of Jesus in your processes? I I hold them dear for myself, mm. and um, I try to be motivated by those teachings. Um, you know, I look at the model that he he had 
giving himself. Like I think Jesus was really the greatest philanthropist because he gave himself completely to the world yeah. and um, a, a complete surrender, even dying on a cross, which which I find really um, a model worth following. Yeah. What about other faiths? Certainly in history, perhaps Buddhism has been, dare I say, more generous and accepting than Christianity. Do you, do you sometimes consider other faiths in your philanthropic processing? We have, so I have, um, I have 11 families that I'm working for right now and, and uh, with stronger philanthropy. So the company I now have uh, has all these different families and n- not all of them have a Christian faith. So they are giving all with different priorities. So we, we do partner with charities of various religions or even none at all. Yeah. Tell us about Gateway, the little immigrant service that grew up. I love the line about the Filipino-Canadian evangelical pastor and the Pakistani-Canadian imam yeah. <laughs> who, yeah. who get together re- regularly to drink tea. <laughs> I love that story. Yeah. And uh, I... I, I got to know this this fellow, uh, Julius. He was a Filipino uh, pastor who was also an accountant. And he had a passion like nobody I've ever seen. And he was really motivated to have a an immigrant welcome center uh, in greater Toronto area. And so we launched it and we, we partnered with him in helping. My wife ended up joining his board. And, uh, and he ended up renting out uh, well, he had the space that was used as a church on Sunday, but on Fridays he rented it out and to the local mosque. And so on Fridays it was a mosque and on Sundays it was a church. Mm, that's great. <laughs> and all, all the other days of the week, it was, you know, a welcome center for refugees and immigrants. And I remember, I remember walking through there one day and it happened to be a Friday and Julius had invited me for lunch I walked through and I turned the corner and there was like a mountain of shoes yeah. in the hallway. And of course the, the Muslims were in the room there praying and uh, the Imam came out and I met him, shook his hand and he ended up joining us for uh, some um, chicken biryani <laughs> for lunch. <laughs> How so fantastic. It was, it was wonderful. Yeah. 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 Wow, what a wonderful, what a wonderful gift, isn't it? It's about giving, isn't it? It really is, yeah. It's fascinating. Uh, There's a chapter there which I read about a need for structure um, in philanthropy, and you write about guerrilla giving. What's all that about? Yeah. (laughs) Well, that was some fellow in Vancouver who um, just had this concept that the best way to give would be just to give anonymously and uh, to give randomly. And so he tucked a $20 bill inside random places in downtown Vancouver. And um, anyway, it was, he called it guerrilla giving yeah. and he had a website and was tracking the uh, people that were receiving the funds. Um, and, and I found that, you know, I use that story as an example of, you know, even though it, it is a generous thing that he did, it wasn't necessarily an effective way to give. Um, and so I think that having some structure around your philanthropy mm. is really actually quite important, uh, particularly if you have, you know, if you're giving away 
uh, large amounts of money. Yeah, yeah. And that's the work that you do sitting in front of the computer and the need that you need to, to get away from when you walk the Camino, right? Yes, that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that leads perfectly to my next question, which is, I suppose, one of the simplest questions. How do you choose one project over another? Well, yeah, that's that's quite a process and a, an issue. Um, we What we do now is when we're working with these families that we – uh, that are our clients, we we interview them and we ask them what their priorities are. What do, what do they want to accomplish with their giving? And according to whatever priorities they set, maybe they have geographic priorities that they want to work within a specific city or or a country. Uh, perhaps they have um, thematic priorities like um, working with children or working with women. Um, you know, so we, we just define what their priorities are and and then we go and source the the charities uh, that fit those priorities and invite them to apply. Um, so we have a closed application system. You, you can't apply unless you're invited. And so we, we select those organizations to to submit applications. And, and when we do that, we we give the, the family um, applications valued at 125% of what they have to give away that, that year. So they have, they have work to do to discern, you know, which one of these charities is, is the the right one for us. Um, They will have to say no to some of them, but most of them do get funding. I'm sure you've said no many times. I have, (laughs) I have. Take us through that process. That must be very difficult. I'll tell you a story. I've, I've learned, I mean, it, I'm not a, I, I, I am, I don't say no naturally. You know, I say yes far off, far too often. But I've learned to say no. And I've learned the value of saying no. And, and uh, I actually can, can see that there's a lot of good, good things that can come from a no. And I'll tell you a story about that. I had a, a young guy come to me um, several years back and he had just launched a small charity working in Rwanda and he needed startup funding for this organization. We were giving grants away. The, the smallest grant was maybe $20,000 at that time. And I, I looked at what he was doing and I said, you know what, we have a certain, we have certain eligibility criteria and you've met two of the five things on my list. <laughs> um, one of the things we had in our eligibility criteria at that time was that it, that the organization could not be a startup. Um, it had to have, have a certain level of revenue yeah. in a given year. And we wanted them to see, we wanted to see a track record of, of they've been already been successful in raising funds themselves they weren't going to be completely reliant on this large donor, um, which so we didn't want to fall in the trap of being, um, you know, kind of their only major donor. Yeah. Um, and so I listed off the three other things that he he needed to do. Um, he hadn't he didn't have a board that was uh, operating well. He um, didn't have the required level of uh, annual income. And um, 
I forget the other thing right now, but he, he went back and two years later he came back and he said, Hey Mark, I've, I've knocked off all five things on this list. <laughs> Would you consider us now? And, and so we did give a small grant at that point and it, it turned into um, a long-term relationship that has grown over time where we have partnered with them to see their work established in Rwanda and, and really flourishing. Um, they, they started a school in Kigali in Rwanda that is, is known throughout the country as being a model school. And they've gained the attention of the ministry of education of the, of the country. And because of their model um, and high level of education that they offer, uh, they've been asked to replicate their, their um, education throughout the whole country. Uh, through the Ministry of Education, which is a great story, you know. Yeah. But it, it, it's, this is why philanthropy is a long-term journey, you know. It's like a pilgrimage because that's a 20-year journey that I just described there for this fellow. Wow. It doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It doesn't happen overnight. And because it doesn't happen overnight and because you, via your parents, were given the opportunity really to make change, not just overnight, but in a long-term sense. If somebody has a dedicated philanthropic life, how important is building their own capacity to give and then maintaining that capacity? Yeah, I think it's important to to build it and maintain it. And I think that this is maybe one of the reasons why I do a pilgrimage and why I'm become more and more addicted to this pilgrimage of the Camino that we're on because um, it it gives me the emotional capacity, I think, to, to do this long-term, you know, Uh, when you're surrounded by need uh, it's draining, you know, I I don't believe that philanthropists should be those types of people that exist in, in their wealthy bubbles and behind closed walls and gates. But if they're truly going to be a philanthropist, they need to come face to face with poverty. They need to come face to face with need and even enter into that need and um, be challenged by that situation. You know, often um, if you don't let yourself go there, uh, your giving is, is much more of a transaction, not a transformational opportunity. Yeah. Well, that's my next question is I wonder how mindful you have to be um, that simply tending to something that could be a more long-term problem that perhaps needs more than a grant. It, it perhaps needs more yeah. a cultural or significant or structural overhaul. Yes. Yes, that's very true. You know, many of the, many of the issues that are being addressed through grant making um, really require vast structural changes in society. Um, whether it's government policy or whether it's the way that, you know, how do, how do we deal with homelessness and, and what yeah. about affordable housing and, and issues like that? Yeah, because I, when, I write, or when I read rather that this massive inheritance was about to go from one generation to, to future generations in trillions of dollars, it struck me that a question someone like you might be able to answer is, will we be richer or poorer? As a result. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's an opportunity, I think, uh, to be richer, mm. but I hope, I hope we can move there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, wow. It's a fascinating book. I absolutely loved it. 
Talk to us about dashboard indicators. <laughs> oh, well, I, I, uh, I, I, I'm a pictorial guy. Like I like seeing things in a pictorial way. Um, and so one of the things we did with our, with our philanthropy, this is what one of the things we did do with every grant uh, where we do due diligence. Um, we create a one-page dashboard indicator uh, page that indicates the health of that charity. And we, I have, so I have graphs, I have images and numbers on this dashboard indicator uh, page that, that in a glance, I can kind of tell um, what the health of that organization is. Um, how reliant are they on major donors for funding? Are they over overly reliant on major donors? Um, uh, what is the efficiency of, of their fundraising uh, ability? Does it cost them five cents to raise a dollar or does it cost them 25 cents to raise a dollar? Yeah. Things like that. Yeah, right. And so my dashboard indicators just tell me the story in a single picture. Chapter 19 talks about examples of innovation. How much does innovation play a part in your philanthropic process? Well, I think for me, it's, it's really critical and, and something that major donors are uniquely um, capable of, of helping with for charities. And so, you know, when you think of charitable giving, um, all of us, I think, should, should be charitable. We can all give something. And that's when you give, you know, funds to fundraisers um, when people ask you for, for money. But philanthropy, I think, is different than charity. Philanthropy uh, has an ability to be innovation, to bring innovation into the whole picture. Yeah. Because, because the major donor can make a major investment in ramping up a charity and allowing it to expand into a whole new um problem area perhaps or perhaps a new geography so with our funding we try to actually identify what is innovative about this project if it's if it's not innovative if it's just ongoing programming that the charity is doing um, i think that's better served by just the regular donors for the organization to keep contributing to the ongoing maintenance of the of the work that's being done Wow. But where a major where a major donor can come along and, and really be helpful is to inject capital into into some innovation that is going to position the charity into a bigger space, into a more effective area of, of work. Yeah, right. Wow. Just one last question before we get to the Camino. I'm absolutely fascinated <laughs> by it. I really am. Um, what about dignity? I, one of the final chapters is about granting dignity, and I imagine it's a very key factor in your decision making. Yes, I agree. Um, I mean, I think we're all children of God, and all of us need to be given dignity. And so I try in all of my relationships with charitable leaders that are requesting funds, I don't treat them like someone looking for a handout these people are are doing an amazing job of you know social good mm. and and i i just respect them tremendously so i i try to offer that dignity to people 
one of the ways that we try to do that as well is, is through our communicating. We try to not leave people hanging, you know, and wondering what happened to the application that I sent in. We try to keep closing the loops on, on communication so that that confers dignity to people where they know exactly where they stand in relationship to you. Yeah. Um, I want to get to the Camino now, but I'm just going to finish with this quote that you write about transformation. It's at the very end of the book. It may be that when we no longer know what we do, we have come to our real work, and that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. Man, I love that. I love that. It's so good. The interesting aspect of the book is that at the end of each chapter, you sort of pose questions, I guess, for, for contemplation. What do you hope readers will get from the book? Well, I, I really wrote the book. Um, the book is part memoir and part um, guidebook, perhaps. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's the Briarleaf for the philanthropy world. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, and and you know, like it's more of a guide, and it's just it's just me contributing my thoughts and walk, walking along with other philanthropists and me sharing my ideas and thoughts on philanthropy from my 20 years experience um, and put together in a way that invites conversation and invites uh, thoughtful discussion about what's going on with their philanthropy. Mark, I often ask our, uh, my guests to tell us a Camino story, but I want you to tell us about the final evening on the Camino and the ukulele. <laughs> okay. Well, this is on my second Camino. I, I walked the Camino del Norte and uh and then the camino primitivo variant there um and along the way as you know you pick up friends and you become a community the camino primitivo in 2015 was not very well traveled and we were a group of about 20 people um who tended to all stay in the same albergue along the way but then all of a sudden our camino merged with the camino francese in malide and I'm sure all of your listeners know what that's like. Uh, those last hundred kilometers of the Camino Frances that are so packed full of people. And we ended up the last night before we walked into Santiago in the Monte de Gozo. And uh, of course it was crowded. There was all the albergue there was completely full. It was a madhouse. And, but we decided, our, us 20 decided that we were going to make a meal for ourselves. And so we all started cooking in the kitchen and pouring wine and uh, we were making a pasta. And then another Spanish lady was there making meatballs for a big group of uh, students. This was not connected to our group. And she had overcooked, uh, oh, she had made too much. And so she ended up sharing all these meatballs with us and like, our, our our last Camino meal together ended up being sitting on the on the ground outside the albergue, drinking Rioja out of teacups and eating this lasagna and, and meatballs and just having a wonderful night. And these kids came along and started playing the ukulele and singing for us. And it was one of those magical Camino endings. <laughs> yeah. And then the next day, tell us about arriving in Santiago de Compostela. Oh, yes. Well, next day... Uh, 
walked into Santiago and uh, the bagpiper is piping you in as you walk through that tunnel and, uh, and then arrive in the plaza. And, oh, I loved, I loved that moment. And then I, I went, of course, to the cathedral and walked in and um, there's an English mass, I think it's at 11. I, I, I probably shouldn't say a time because it probably changes from year to year, but I think for us, it was 11 o'clock. We walked into the cathedral and there's an English mass happening in a side chapel. Mm. And so I, I went over to that and uh, participated in that mass. And I had not really figured this out until I arrived in Santiago. But the day we arrived in Santiago happened to be the feast day of St. Lawrence. And now I, I'll just tell you about St. Lawrence because he was, um, he's someone that I've adopted myself as a patron saint of philanthropy. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't know that he has that official designation, but his, his story is that he, he was um, the deacon in Rome in 286 or 7 AD. And it was during a time when the Christians in Rome were being persecuted. They were being thrown to the lions. They were being arrested and, and harangued by the Romans. And the Romans had come and they had uh, taken away the Pope and they had executed the Pope. And as the Pope was being led away to, to his execution, he prophesied to Lawrence and he said, Lawrence, in three days, you will, you will follow me to death. And, he's, and he said he gave him the wealth of the church. He gave him the keys to the treasury of the church for his safekeeping. And Lawrence had three days to figure out what to do with the wealth of the church. And he decided that the wealth of the church was better used uh, by being distributed and given away rather than being hoarded. And so he, he gave the wealth of the church to the poor in Rome. So three days later, the Romans came to arrest Lawrence and take him to his death. And they said, where's the wealth of the church? And he opened the doors of the church and he showed them all the poor in the piazza outside the church. And he said, the poor are the wealth of the church. And so by that way, he was reframing um, what is wealth, what is poverty, and what is philanthropy? And so because of that, I've, I've taken Lawrence as my patron saint. And so when I walked into Santiago and walked into the mass and the mass was dedicated to St. Lawrence, I really thought that that was like a Camino miracle. And I was super happy about that. Wow. And it kind of just sealed the deal for that whole Camino for me. <laughs> That's a great story. That's fantastic. I went to St. Lawrence's. That was the school I went to. Oh, <laughs> That's great. Yeah, St. Lawrence's. Well, we, yeah. Have, we have the St. Lawrence River here in Canada as well, and his name seems to pop up all over. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I wonder when you think back now, uh, how do you think the Camino impacted you? Well, <laughs> one of the things that happened, so I've walked, I've walked three Caminos, uh, 2014, 15, and 16, and and it was after that third one, that I came home and uh, talked to my wife. We had a discussion about where we were gonna live. And we just decided that we were going to move out of Toronto, 
we so in the intro i think you mentioned that i was uh my, my i was working out of toronto and that was true up to a point uh but then we moved to atlantic canada to the province of new brunswick um to quite a rural town a uh, town of about three thousand people and um Rural New Brunswick is nowhere near like Toronto. Let me tell you that. <laughs> and, and I think, I, I think us doing that, it was a, a quest for simplicity and just having a simpler life. Um, I can do my work from my computer, so I don't necessarily need to always be in the center of the big city. And for me, the Camino helped me kind of re envision how I frame my life. I don't need to be in the center. I can be on the fringe I can be on the margin and, and fulfill my, my duties and, and job. And so that's where we've ended up settling is this big old house. Uh, real estate, of course, is very inexpensive in New Brunswick. <laughs> and we, we ended up buying a house that was um, 180 years old, which is very old for Canada. That um, predated confederation. So when we, received the deed to our house. Um, I looked in the file and there was the, all the original paperwork from the 1840s um, when New Brunswick was a British crown colony and it was under Her Majesty Queen Victoria. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was just such an incredible uh, gift this house was. And so we've, we've ended up calling the house Casa San Lorenzo, uh, the house of St. Lawrence. Wow. Yeah, so that's how the Camino has really shaped me. <laughs> wow, that's great. So I always ask this question, what did you learn about yourself on the Camino? Yeah, I like that question. I, I, I think one of the things I've learned and am learning is I don't need as much as I think I need. And um, I'm pretty happy with li very little. <laughs> Um, yeah. and it's, it's, it's more, for me, it's more about who, who is in my life, my relationships, um, than it is about things, you know? Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. What would you say to somebody who's thinking of walking the Camino? I would say, go for it. I would encourage them wholeheartedly. Um, everybody has, has different motivations for walking. Um, but I hope that if they do walk, that they'll use it as an opportunity to consider how their life can be reordered. Um, use it as an escape from your day-to-day -day and consider how your life can maybe have a different framework going forward. Mm, wow. The Camino will reveal that to you. Yeah. What would you say to somebody thinking of a life of philanthropy? I would say that that's also a, a wonderful opportunity. And uh, I think, was it Jesus that said, it's more blessed to give than to receive? And there is a blessing in giving. Um, so I think that if you are considering a life of philanthropy, consider the model that my dad ch chose to do. You know, draw a line in the sand and say, this is enough. I don't need any more. And anything remaining outside of that line can go to the benefit of others. Yeah, how wonderful it has been to have this discussion with you, Mark. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm, 
I think you can tell I'm fascinated by the process and the 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 psychology of it all. It it, it really intrigues me. So congratulations on your work with Stronger Philanthropy. Congratulations on finding your pace and rhythm as mm. a human and as a pilgrim. And best of luck as you navigate and negotiate those sometimes often unsteady paths that you talked about. Buen Camino. Thank you, Dan. Buen Camino to you. My guest this week was Mark Peterson, and Mark's book is Love Giving Well, The Pilgrimage of Philanthropy. A big shout out again to Bill and Martha and Laura and Patty, who joined me as patrons this month. I really appreciate it. You too can sponsor me via patreon.com forward slash Dan Mullins. The Australian artist and poet Michael Loonig wrote a prayer. Dear God, we pray for another way of being, another way of knowing. Across the difficult terrain of our existence, we have attempted to build a highway and in doing so have lost our footpath. God, lead us to our footpath. Lead us there where in simplicity we may move at the speed of natural creatures and feel the earth's love beneath our feet. Lead us there where step by step we may feel the movement of creation in our hearts. And lead us there where side by side we may feel the embrace of the common soul. Nothing can be loved at speed. God, lead us to the slow path, to the joyous insights of the pilgrim. Another way of knowing, another way of being. Amen. A lot of talk this week about kindness. The American rabbi Harold S. Kusher once said, do things for people not because of who they are or what they do in return, but because of who you are. Thank you for your kindness. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. Somewhere along the way, somewhere